You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Please rise for the reading of God's word. Today's passage comes from Psalm 16. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we open up God's word here in this this magnificent psalm of confident trust in the Lord, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we praise you that in life's sorrows you are there. We praise you that in times of unexpected joy you are there. We praise you, Lord, for the resurrected power of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we worship you, we adore you. We give you all the glory and praise for this and every story that points to the reality of the resurrected Christ. Open our hearts, our ears, our hands to receive your truth this morning. Plant it deep within us. Illumine, Holy Spirit, your word for us this day. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. We live in a society that in many ways values security. I'm reminded of this, I think, every time I walk through our neighborhood and I see all of the various signs for various security systems, when I see the ring doorbells that people have installed, even, you can get, even get fake cameras to try to give the illusion of there being more security than there actually is. Between identity theft monitoring, security guards, background screening, um, risk analysis, cybersecurity, security services as a whole is a nearly $50 billion industry in the United States alone. How quickly, though, we lose sight of the fact, too, that there are people all over the world and in our own backyard who are impacted by raging conflicts like the one happening in Ukraine. 
lawlessness and unrest, crippling poverty, fierce droughts, destructive storms. Where do we look and where should we go for security? Does security depend upon what is happening in our lives? Does it depend upon the circumstances that we face? Psalm 16 reveals that even in the fiercest and most terrifying moments in our lives, when it seems as if all hope is lost, God alone, as the psalmist declares, is our portion and our cup. Psalm 16 is an expression of full confidence in the Lord, even in the face of death. It is an appeal for protection in a dangerous world, but there is more than meets the eye. For in Psalm 16, we see how the New New Testament writers found a foreshadowing of the very resurrection of Jesus Christ, in whom all eternal hope is found. And so that's what I'd like to do with our time here together this morning, to look first at this psalm of confident trust and the five facets of this this fostering of, of confident trust that we find, among others, among many before turning then to the impact of this song of the Savior, the impact of this psalm on the early church, the place of significance that it held among the New Testament writers. So first, I should say too that I really found the writings of Mark Futato really helpful in putting this together, how he helped me think through some of the ways in which this psalm fosters confident trust. And so, The first is this, trusting in the Lord means taking refuge in Him, verses 1 and 2. You might notice the very first line or the title, the miktam of David, that could be translated an inscription. It very easily could have been a psalm that was etched in stone in some place of prominence so that the entire community could be reminded of this time of deliverance in David's life. It is not certain when David, this shepherd boy turned king, wrote this particular psalm or even what was happening in his life, but as verses 9 through 11 suggest, there was a a danger that was threatening his life, and he appeals for protection in verse 1, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. Taking refuge is a way of seeking the Lord's protection. It demonstrates David's full reliance upon the Lord. This appeal for protection is coupled with an affirmation of his close relationship with the Lord when he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. David recognizes that God is his only source of well-being, that God is his highest good. As the psalmist declares in Psalm 73, verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Trusting the Lord means taking refuge in Him and recognizing Him as our highest good. Some questions for us to ponder. What what difficult situation might you be faced with today? Might you be suffering silently in a way that you have not brought in the rest of the community into that situation? Have you sought the Lord's refuge and strength in the midst of that challenge? Or are you traveling down the path of self-reliance apart from Him, the kind of mentality that says, I can make it on my own? And is the Lord your highest good? 
Trusting in the Lord means taking refuge solely in Him. And the second facet of confident trust in the Lord is trusting in the Lord means being devoted to Him. Verses 3 and 4. David, in seeing God as his highest good, this has implications then on how he sees others. And he identifies two groups of people. First, there are the holy people who are in the land, verse 3. And then those who run after false gods, in verse 4. These holy people, or saints, are those who are set apart by God, those that live according to his covenant, those who have responded to the call in Leviticus 20, for instance, to be holy, for I am holy. These are the ones that David delights in. And in in contrast, there is no joy in associating with those who run after false gods and suffer more and more as a result. Foreign gods were a constant temptation to the people of Israel, and many added worship of false gods to their worship of the Lord in what's known as syncretism. A bit of this, a bit of that, I'm reminded of like... You can see what kind of movies I'm watching right now, but Little Mermaid, uh, you know, Ursula putting together the potion, right? Just throwing in this, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And that's what the people were tempted to do. And David takes his stand and makes his position clear. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods. Libations or drink offerings were a perversion of worship that involved the ritual pouring out of blood from the sacrificial victim. Now, I know that's a pretty grotesque image. You probably didn't have libations of blood on your Easter bingo card. I'm pretty sure. But bear with, bear with me here. In fact, he, he takes it one step further. Not only will he not do such things, but he, he says, or take up their names on my lips. He refuses to even mention the names of such foreign gods. He will not join them in their destructive path. Trusting in the Lord means joining with our fellow saints and being devoted to him exclusively and rooting out every form of false worship. David's delight in the saints should challenge us too and and cause us to search our own hearts. What is our attitude toward our fellow believers? The New Testament uses the same imagery, that of the saints, to refer to our fellow sisters and brothers in Christ? Are we joyful toward them? Do we delight in one another? Are we in prayer for one another? And what's more, what temptations do we face to engage in forms of false worship? You know, our family's been going through the New City Catechism for Kids, which I really recommend. Uh, Fair warning, the songs are total earworms, so if you're the type that those things just end up on repeat in your head, fair warning. Anyway, but my daughter, in asking, in going through the Ten Commandments in particular, asked, what is an idol? What is an idol? And I explained to her that an idol is anything or anyone we worship other than the one true God. What idols do we worship? It's easy to dismiss such blatant forms of false worship as those expressed in verse 4, I haven't poured out a blood offering recently, check. But what other seemingly good things do we idolize? What do we throw into the potion of our worship? Are we worshiping at the altar of career, of family, of achievement? of status, 
Church, trusting in the Lord means being, being devoted exclusively to Him. Here's the third facet. Trusting in the Lord means finding satisfaction in Him. Verses 5 to 6. Having rejected the cup of false worship, David's lips form the name of Yahweh alone. And he declares, you alone are my portion and my cup. This highlights that God is the true source of security and blessing. And what David does here, I I believe, is draw rich imagery that's related to the land. These words, portion and lot and boundary lines and inheritance, all have to do with the allotment of the land to the tribes of Israel. But David is not focused on the land itself. By saying you alone, the emphasis is on God himself as his true inheritance. These images are expressions of contentment in life, seeing our lives as carefully arranged as falling under his providential care. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Anyone who is among God's people has their delightful inheritance in the Lord himself. Trusting in the Lord means finding satisfaction in Him alone as the true source of security and blessing. Can you honestly say that you find your full satisfaction in Him? Do you delight in the Lord and in His providential care? John Calvin, in reflecting on this passage, wrote, Let us therefore learn when God offers Himself to us to embrace Him with the whole heart and to seek in Him only all the ingredients and the fullness of our happiness. Whenever those things present themselves to us which would lead us away from resting in God alone, let us make use of this sentiment as an antidote against them, that we have sufficient cause for being contented, since He who has in Himself an absolute fullness of all good has given Himself to be enjoyed by us. Trusting in the Lord means finding our full satisfaction in Him alone. Here's the fourth facet. Trusting in the Lord means seeking wisdom from Him. Verses 7 to 8. What is the Lord's provision in verses 5 to 6 includes His instruction, which now David gives praise for. And and the two features in verses 7 to 8 are that of moral instruction followed by the assurance of stability. Instruction and stability. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Points to the direction and the guidance that comes through God's word and God's spirit. It's similar to the, the phrase that captured my imagination at the end of the psalm, the path of life in verse 11. And even at night, my heart instructs me. I, this is a really fun little nugget that I guess he throws in here. The word for heart is actually literally kidneys. Now, that probably was also not on your Easter bingo card to be talking about kidneys in an Easter message, but I digress. This to, to the people would have been considered the seed of emotions. And so he talks about his heart, his inner life, informing him, instructing him even in sleep. I don't think he was sleeping with his earbuds in or whatever the case may be, but at any rate, I think the picture that may be given here is the, how much he hid God's word in his heart even so that at night when he lay down to sleep, he was pondering the things of God. I keep my eyes always on the Lord, verse 8. Picture someone as a, 
a hiking guide on a mountain trail going before you, somebody who knows the trail, somebody who knows the terrain and invites you to follow them in that way. That is what is pictured here. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. And David will not be swayed by the challenges he faces because the Lord is, as, is at his right hand. Now, wait a minute. I think we're a little bit used to this whole notion of right-hand imagery. But this seems a little backwards, doesn't it? The Lord is at his right hand. Well, in, if you think about in the ancient Near East, the person to the right of a king would have the privilege of defending them with the shield. So putting someone in that place would have involved high trust, would have also involved honor. A similar notion is found in Psalm 109, verse 31, for the Lord stands at the right hand of the needy to save their lives from those who would condemn them. Submitting to the Lord's wisdom and instruction ensures that our footing will remain solid. Not only is he at our right hand, but as David declares, I will not be shaken. This picks up what is the very last line of Psalm 15. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Psalm 16 is almost pictured as a completion of Psalm 15. Trusting the Lord means seeking wisdom from Him and keeping our eyes fixed upon Him. And so questions for us to consider, how are, are you growing in God's wisdom? Are you sitting at His feet, learning His ways, yearning for His counsel? How can you come to take in more of His very Word, to have it sink deep within you, so that in times of trial, in times of struggle, you recall His life-giving words? Are you intentional about keeping your eyes fixed on the Lord? Are you following Him as He goes before us as our guide? Or do you find yourself hurried and distracted by many things? Trusting in the Lord means seeking wisdom from Him. Here's the fifth and final facet of confident trust. Trusting in the Lord means expressing worship to Him. At the end of the day, expressing worship to Him, verses 9 through 11. In light of his confidence in not being shaken, David erupts into exclamatory praise with a joyful heart, and a, or a glad heart and a joyful tongue. And three reasons for this, that he gives praise. You see his inner joy, this audible praise, physical security. Three reasons for resting securely come next, that deliverance from death, guidance in life, and God's presence for all eternity. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. Verse 10. This suggests that David was delivered from that immediate threat that he was facing in that, at that time, that his life was spared. But in contrast to death and decay, God has placed him squarely on the path of life and restored him to fullness of joy in God's everlasting presence. The psalm ends with a return to the right-hand image, but different. Before God stood at David's right hand to guide and protect him, now David is assured of being at the right hand of God forever to experience his blessing and his presence. The refugee of verse 1 finds himself an heir in verse 11 with all of the blessings and all of the privileges and, yes, even God's eternal presence in that place of honor. Trusting in the Lord 
means expressing worship to him for deliverance from death, guidance in life, and God's eternal presence. Well, going through Psalm 16, one can't help but get the sense that this goes beyond David's personal experience. He did not always keep his eye on the Lord, and yes, he eventually faced death even himself. Some elements of Psalm 16 have come to be called, some have referred to him as, as an unrealized ideal. And that's where leaders in the early church found in these words a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. In him, the ideals and the hopes of Psalm 16 are fulfilled. Peter cites Psalm 16, 8 through 11, in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2. He applies these verses to the resurrected Christ, and Paul agrees with Peter and ends up referring to these verses as well in his sermon in Acts 13. But in our time here, I wanted to look at least at Acts 2. Would you flip over, in fact, to Acts 2, starting in verse 22? This magnificent sermon at Pentecost. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Church Peter was convinced that David had caught a glimpse of Christ's death and resurrection, that David, being a prophet, foresaw future events and spoke of Christ's resurrection from the dead. The Holy One, the true Holy One, is the resurrected Jesus Christ who is now exalted at the right hand of the Father. And so, church, ultimately, this confident trust that Psalm 16 speaks of and then is, I, is realized in Jesus, ultimately trusting in the Lord, means believing in the risen Christ in whom we take refuge, to whom we are devoted, in whom we find full satisfaction, from whom we seek wisdom, and to whom we express worship for all that he has done. Christ's resurrection is what guarantees our future resurrection. And because Jesus is risen and reigning at the right hand of the Father, so we can enjoy his presence for all eternity. Even when we face death, we do not mourn as those who have no hope. 
Psalm 16, I believe, drips with double meaning, we might say, both in the contrast that it sets up as well as the culmination that is revealed, the culmination in Christ. Consider just a, a handful of the contrasts. In fact, you might even do this this upcoming week. You could draw a line down a page and consider some of the ways in which the, this contrast appears. David faced death and was delivered from that threat. Jesus faced death and willingly gave his life on the cross. David thought death would be the end. For Jesus, death was the door. David declared confidence even over the danger of death. Jesus rose up in victory from the stranglehold, shattering the stranglehold of death. And God did not abandon David to the realm of the dead, but God delivered Jesus through the realm of the dead. Now consider how it culminates in Christ. As with David, God might rescue us from an untimely death, but eventually death will come. Death will come as it does for everyone. But there is new ground, there is, there is never be shaken ground for confidence for humankind. As we are reminded on Good Friday, Jesus was forsaken, he was rejected, and he was torn for you. He was crucified on a cruel Roman cross and buried in a stone-cold tomb, but he didn't stay there. Three days later, he rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death once and for all. The resurrection of Jesus offers hope to all who stare death in the face. The path of life is Christ himself who declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A similar image is found in Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. There may be some here today or joining us online who have never come to a place where you have expressed trust in Christ alone where you've believed in his resurrection. Friends, the call is the same as it is at the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be baptized in the name of the risen Savior for the forgiveness of sins. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Perhaps this has stirred up even more questions in your mind. I would love, I know any of our, our leadership here would love to, to gather with you. In fact, in the connection card, you'll hear about that later, but the, that, our, that digital connection card has a place where you can select I would like to know more about the story of Jesus, to understand what he is, who he is, what he has done, and how we are called to respond. We would be delighted to help you, maybe even through something as simple as the Gospel of Mark, which is what we've been going through as a church, to understand his claims even more. But do not let this moment pass by. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved.
Church, ultimately trusting in the Lord means believing in the risen Christ in whom we take refuge, to whom we are to be devoted exclusively, in whom we find full satisfaction and joy, from whom we seek counsel and wisdom, and at the end of the day, to whom we express all glory and honor and praise. Amen, church? Amen. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this psalm, this song of the Savior, for how you worked in the life of your servant David, and how you drew him to yourself. And Father, we thank you for that same power, the power of our resurrected Savior who is at work now, even now in our lives, in this church, and in your world. Lord, would you draw us to you? Would you draw those to you that have perhaps never placed their faith in you before. And Father, for those of us that do, would you renew our faith? And even as we sing together, Lord, would you impress these truths deeper within our soul? As we come to the Lord's table together, Lord, would you cause us to remember all that you have done, Lord Jesus, on our behalf? We worship you. We give you praise. And we pray this in the precious and matchless name of our Savior, our risen Savior. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.